Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alfreda, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Today's topic is should I engage in lobbying? And, um, might seem like a strange topic for a business podcast, but not when you look at the numbers. According to CNBC, lobbying is now a three and a half billion dollar industry. That's a lot. That's a larger industry than many industries venture capitalists will put money into. So it's a big deal. And of course, lobbying gets a lot of attention in in the political arena. Generally, bad. You know, if you want to win votes, you bash lobbyists, right? That's just. That's just sort of the way the political game goes. But on the other hand, the amount of lobbying that goes on uh, continues to grow and become ever more sophisticated, ever more pervasive. So somebody out there must like it and must think that it serves a useful purpose or we wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't be experiencing that. And, and so, you know, in particular, since I have a background in technology, um, I think lobbying is interesting because technology companies, I think, generally speaking, have been very late to the lobbying game. I think, I think Silicon Valley and uh, the, the companies born out of that, such as Microsoft and Apple and Facebook and so forth, I think really for a long time have, and Amazon have thought themselves, frankly, to be above lobbying, that it was simply a practice that was beneath them. Um, but we've seen them really pivot on that over the last 10 years as, as there have become increasing concerns about privacy. There have been increasing concerns about monopoly market power, worker conditions, and so forth, um, uh, use of foreign labor. Um, all of a sudden, those companies as well have decided that they're all about lobbying. And um, uh you know, frankly, I don't understand lobbying. I've never been a lobbyist. I've never engaged in it, at least not to my knowledge. But I think it's something that many companies are are, are thinking about. And, you know, I suspect there's a surprise or two in this conversation because there, there may be some companies that have dismissed lobbying but may already be doing so indirectly and they don't even realize it or realize that lobbying may be something that they should consider and maybe something that's much more in their reach than they had previously imagined. And helping us out today is Jennifer Grundy-Young, who is a seasoned association executive with an extensive background in representing organizations that serve the advanced manufacturing, technology, and life sciences industries. In her current capacity, 
She serves as the Chief Executive Officer of the Technology Councils of North America, or TECNA. TECNA represents 66 technology-traded organizations from across the United States and Canada that collectively represent more than 22,000 technology-related businesses. In this role, she is tasked with advocating on behalf of the technology industry as well as creating a platform for the members of TECNA to share best practices. Prior to joining TECNA, she served as Director of Policy and Public Affairs for Life Sciences PA, which is a statewide association that advocates on behalf of Pennsylvania's diverse medical device, pharmaceutical and life sciences related industries. While there, Ms. Young worked closely with the Pennsylvania General Assembly to create policies and make the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania the best place for a life sciences business to start, grow, and thrive. And Pennsylvania is a place that's near and dear to my heart as a graduate of Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster and then spent living for a year in Carlisle, which is down the street. Uh, Ms. Young gained her initial public policy experience serving as an aide to U.S. Congresswoman Melissa Hart, who represented Pennsylvania's 4th Congressional District and served on the powerful Ways and Means Committee. In her free time, Ms. Young is an avid runner and is an active volunteer and mentor in her community. She graduated from Westminster College and lives in Upper St. Clair, Pennsylvania with her husband and two boys. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. So I want to start very basic here because uh, I'm not sure that I know what lobbying is exactly. I mean, I have an idea of what I think it is, and I freely acknowledge at the start of this conversation it may be completely inaccurate. So at a minimum, please educate me and perhaps some of our listeners out there. What, what is lobbying exactly and how does it work? Well, it's, it's a big word. Um, I think it encompasses a lot of things. And, you know, it really is anything. It, it is engaging in an activity where you are seeking to influence policy by influencing the policymaker, whether that's a, somebody in the administration or a legislator. So someone who's actually crafting or has power over policy. And so that's who you would be lobbying. And that that's guaranteed in our First Amendment and the Constitution to do so. And and so why does it occur? What what purpose does it serve and why is it why has it become at least economically such a big deal? Well, um kind of taking it you know about out you know to a, a 30,000 foot view, the federal government is is to start with, you know, the largest uh, purchaser of goods in the world. And so a lot of times you will hear about uh, companies or entities lobbying for government contracts or for, um, you know, things like that. The government typically has a say in just about everything you do, um, how fast you drive on the road, whether you wear a seatbelt, um, you know, what time you can purchase a glass of wine in a, in a hotel lobby. Um, how, you know, whether you're allowed to drive a car, whether you're allowed to purchase a gun, whether you're allowed to wear shoes in a store, um, or, or not. So it really does, there is a lot of overarching into your life and into business. And so typically people lobby, um, out of an interest that they have and perhaps seeing something different that is currently happening or to put something on the books or in regulation or in law that would be better to make things better through their eyes. So, perfectly candid, and I imagine you'd agree with this, that at least from afar, lobbying doesn't have the necessarily the greatest reputation, right? There's, I've never seen a politician's speech start out with, won't somebody please think of the lobbyists, right? <laughs> what about them, right? 
Right. You just don't, you just don't, don't, don't see that. Right. Right. But yeah. nevertheless, it persists. And, and I suspect that it probably persists from the earliest days of the Republic and maybe even before. Right. So mm-hmm. yep. why it, therefore it must serve some good purpose. I simply refuse to believe that after, mm-hmm. you know, 235, 36 years or so, um, you know, depending when you think the country started independence or constitution, um, you know, we've had ample opportunities to get rid of it. We've chosen not to. <laughs> what is the useful What is the useful purpose that lobbying serves in our society that it's able to persist in yeah. spite of the reputation that it generally holds? That's a great question. So, lobbying has become kind of a necessary evil, um, and it's not really a necessary evil. It actually, lobbyists are very useful, um, and when used correctly, um, which they more often than not are. They, they serve a very important purpose in the government. So take anything that our, you know, constitutional, constitutionally recognized representatives, all of our representatives are not experts in everything. They're not experts in healthcare or taxation. You might have a handful that are or a handful that's an expert in foreign policy or trade or, um, you know, down in the state level, even all the way to a lot of what's going on with COVID-19 with restrictions and with the restaurant business and with, and so, when they're looking to make policy, when legislators or regulators or administration officials are looking to make policy, oftentimes they will reach out to those bodies first and say, here's what we're thinking. We want to, um, we'll use one that everybody knows. We want to uh, raise the speed limit in Pennsylvania. I use Pennsylvania. I'm based in Pennsylvania from 65 to 70. So in that, you're going to have the special interest groups. You might have the, you know, AAA saying, let's do it. You know, we're going to get more people on the road. Let's get it up to 70. We're going to have a lot more people going. The Restaurant Association is going to say, definitely, we want more people to come to Pennsylvania. They're going to be lobbying for it. Um, and then they may call the, you know, um, emergency responder, you know, the EMS and say, is this a good idea? And they say, no, because this, this, and this, and these are the reasons why, and these are the real data points as to why, or they may call the car manufacturers and say, can the cars sustain, you know, that kind of speed over time? Um, a really good example of this is something our organization specifically is working on right now, which is around highly skilled immigration reform. I mean, my gosh, talk about a humongous bucket of <laughs> probably the, the hardest next to the tax code. I think the hardest um, just policy that exists out there is immigration. And, you know, when you think of immigration, you can think of about 50 things. It could be the border. It could be people coming in um, to work at a vineyard. It could be people coming in to work at hotels. It could be your neighbor who came to work as a software engineer at a company down the street. So it's humongous. And one of the issues the United States has currently is highly skilled immigration reform. They need, we don't have enough software engineers in this country to fill holes that we need to fill. So our companies can't hire any more American software engineers because there aren't any more. We've hired them all. The colleges can only produce so many. They're all gainfully employed. So we need to find more in the world, but we can't bring them in legally right now because there's a cap on the H-1B visas. Well, a lot of our elected officials don't know that. <laughs> so they require lobbyists to go and say, here are the data points. Let me explain to you why this is important specifically to the tech industry. And here is the debating argument. And they'll bring people in that talk about that. And so oftentimes they are very important um, because they are 
you know, the facts, the people who, who are able to relay the information, they're the, actually the specialists in the industry. So they, they get a bad name <laughs> when yep. the opposing force is saying the opposite and somebody else wins. And so it's easy to make an enemy out of the very same people that you are and say, well, it was the lobbying. It was the outside interest group that was doing it. Like, well, there was an outside interest group that was pushing it the other way too. And so it's an easy target like lawyers, you know, <laughs> and, and, and business appraisers too. Um, so, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I, um, you, you touched on something that I actually want to, I want to pause on and dig in deeper because, um, you know, for example, raising, raising the speed limit, I'm dating myself. I'm old enough to remember when, when, um, uh, Ronald Reagan basically put a cap on the speed limit. Um, no, that was, sorry, that wasn't the speed limit. It was something else having to do with the high, it was a drinking age. That's right. He was going <laughs> to withhold federal funding in order to make sure the drinking age stayed at 21, mm-hmm. basically. Um, but, but in your case, the, you know, there's one side of, of people that, you know, people driving faster means they're, they're more likely to drive a longer distance to patronize my business, whether it's retail or mm-hmm. restaurants, entertainment, whatever. And then there's the other side, as you mentioned, the paramedics that, you know, don't want to scrape people off the pavement. Mm-hmm. And they're pointing out that people who drive at higher speeds are more likely to get into an accident. I'm guessing I haven't seen the data. And when they get into one, it's probably a worse mm-hmm. one when it happens. Right. Yeah. So. If when, 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 when two lobbying groups kind of square off, how do you handicap who's going to win? Right. How, how is it, is it, is it somebody that just, is it more charisma? Is it more persuasive an argument? Is it showing that you have more votes behind you? Is it something else I'm not even thinking? You know, how, how does one side kind of win over the other? That's a really good question too. Um, a lot of it is, um, you know, typically who is in the majority in the legislature. So you'll know when certain issues are going to get done and and be taken up because they're popular among a particular political party. Um, And that's the time to do certain things you want to do. Um, If you want to lower taxes, the time to go about that is when the Republicans are in control. If you want to um, well, immigration reform is a great example. You know, we're looking to do that right now. You know, we, we're, we have an audience with a lot of the chairs of the committees who are in charge of that because um, that is something that the Democrats on the federal level are more in favor of. So, it, you know, that plays a big part of it. Also, um, how much money is it going to cost? <laughs> is it going to cost yeah. money? Is it going to cost the government money? Great. If it's going to cost money, then you better figure out how to pay for it, too, as part of your argument. And if it's going to bring money in, typically people are pretty excited about that. Um, you know, in the government, they're going to be excited. Right. If some, whatever you're proposing or advocating for is going to bring money in, that's usually a, an easier win than something that's going to cost money. So those are typically handicaps right out of the gate that you can, you have something either on your side or not on your side. Now, are lobbying organizations such as yours, are, are, are you guys permitted by law to make campaign contributions? Yes. You are, are. Okay. So it's a taxed status. Um, depending on what your, t- you know, your registration, your tax, you know, registration is, but anybody can have a, a political action committee and that's how you would do that type of thing. And those are all done, you know, whether it's through the state, local or um, federal level, those are registered political action committees or PACs. And that is typically how those types of contributions are made as well as individuals. And then, you know, depending on 
what level of government you're at, whether there's limits um, for particular offices, when cycles are, things like that. It's pretty heavily regulated for the most part. Now, your organization, if I'm not mistaken, is something of a lobbying aggregator, for lack of a better term, or a more intelligent mm-hmm. one, right? You represent 66 technology trade organizations who in turn represent over 22,000 technology-related businesses. Explain kind of what the value is of that kind of model versus a company lobbying directly. Is there a choice to be made? Are they mutually exclusive? Are there members, for example, that also lobby on their own behalf, maybe work through other organizations? Is it a direct line of sight? Is it a web of of complex relationships? Can, Can you kind of shed some light on how that how that kind of pans out. Yes to all of that. <laughs> but yes, so our organization, um, we're, we're a trade association. And so we represent other trade associations, other technology trade associations across the United States and Canada. They represent actual um, member companies. So they are the ones who represent the 22,000 collectively that rolls up to us. So they individually sometimes yes, sometimes no, advocate on their own or lobby on their own. Um, We will lobby on behalf of the group as a whole and represent that voice of 22,000 based on on collective issues that we've decided. We have a policy agenda that our policy committee has developed and approved and voted on. And they're, they're bigger buckets of things that are important to that collective audience as a whole, um, where, you know, the majority of them are small companies in nature and don't lobby on their own. They may have individual relationships with a couple of members of Congress or their general assembly in their state. Um, but, but generally speaking, the majority of them don't lobby on their own um, because there maybe isn't necessarily a need for them themselves, but collectively it's important to them because there are larger issues that a larger voice would make a bigger impact on. And I, I'm guessing there's an element of economies of scale too, right? If I'm a if I'm a nine person software as a service startup, right, and I've got maybe a couple hundred grand of angel funding, you know, I, I've got code to write. I've got to figure out a way to get and retain customers. There isn't going to be a big line item line item in my budget for lobbying, right? right. And you know, uh, this is you know, this is nature of our economy. This is grown up talk. Um, how much money you spend on lobbying can matter, right? Can impact the amount of lobbying that's done, the level of which is done the experience and connections of the person doing the lobbying, right? So it seems to me also that for, for you know, if I'm running that small company and I want, I think there's something important in terms of government policy vis-a-vis technology, the only realistic way I can have a say is to join a trade organization that's going to amplify my voice by, by pooling resources, if you will. And hopefully at least everybody's directionally kind of, kind of trying to push for the same things. Exactly. And it, and it, it behooves a lot of smaller companies to join a like-minded a trade association. I mean, there are associations out there for just about any industry you can imagine. And so it, it makes sense to do that because honestly, when you're a small entrepreneur, you know, there aren't enough hours in the day as it is already and spending any amount of time, whether it's one minute or 50 minutes of your day, your week, you know, on lobbying, uh, it has to be pretty darn important and either is going to make or break your business to spend that kind of time on it. So allowing someone else to do that and maybe taking one day out of your year 
to go to your state capital or your nation's capital to talk about your individual company and that's it and allow your association to do it. It's typically a better fit um, because you have a business to run and it, it does behoove you to do that <laughs> versus spending yeah. a lot of time. Yeah. So. So how, I'm going to ask you a very loaded question, but, but <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway, you can handle it. And that, that question is how effective is lobbying? You know, is it, is, is it always effective? Is it sometimes effective? And, and can one expect results in a fairly short period of time or is lobbying more for the person or the company that's playing the long game? How would you, how would you address that question? It's a good question. It's, it's not, uh, it's not for the faint of heart and it's definitely typically not a quick turnaround. If it's ever a quick turnaround, I think the, a lot that has happened with COVID in the last, within the States um, over the last year has been some of the fastest moving stuff I've ever seen go through the government because it has to, um, as well as, you know, the CARES Act of last spring was that amount of money to go through the Congress that fast was, I don't know if it'll ever happen again. So that was a big deal. Um, so it's definitely not for the faint of heart. It takes a long time. Typically, it takes a lot of groundwork. And, you know, lobbyists aren't there. It is actually a specialty and it is something that they're good at doing and they know how to do it. And so they know who to talk to. They know how to steer the, the conversation. They will um, typically help companies, associations um, understand who they should be talking to and when and why and knowing when to move the needle in a calendar year and a fiscal year, um, those types of things. And so there's a reason that lobbyists do it when they do. Um, it is typically all calculated and it, it isn't just a matter of, you know, saying we're just going to get this done and get it done. It, it is actually a very strategic way of doing things. And it's not all contrived. It's, it's not all planned out. Um, there definitely are things that come up and, you know, encouraging businesses to understand or at least pay a little bit of attention to government and asking some questions sometimes is really helpful because everything, like I said, the government does, does affect your business one way or another and should be just at least, you know, read the paper once a week or turn on the news every now and again and just pay attention to what's happening because it does affect you, even though you don't think it does, it will. And so, you know, but it doesn't move fast. (laughs) It doesn't move fast. Right. So you don't use, Hey, you know, there's a, there's a bill coming up there or there's a policy I'd like to have changed next week. You know, that, that's not a lobbying. That's probably not a lobbying thing. <laughs> right. Not, 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 not a, a realistic that's a, that's a long-term goal. Right. 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 So yeah. you touched on something I, I wanted to make sure to, to, to ask you. And that is, uh, you know, how has the pandemic changed lobbying? Right. I mean, has, has, has the fact that, that, the nature of human contact certainly for a year changed. And, you know, we may or may not go back to that in this inter pandemic kind of world that we're in. Right. Um, uh, how has that changed? I mean, are are these, are these conversations happening through zoom calls or, you know, and it's, it's, I mean, it's just gotta be so weird, right? Because if, if one network catches you with your masks on, then you're not a patriot. And if one network catches you with no masks on, then, you're an idiot and you're trying to kill babies. Right. And it's just, it's so complicated to do this stuff anymore. Has, has your industry been impacted by, by, by the pandemic? Yes. So like everybody else, you know, the first, I don't know, six, eight months of this was done. A lot of it was virtual and phone calls, which 
you know, the phone calls already existed. Um, but this, you know, lobbying kind of goes back. And I think a lot of lobbyists function this way and believe this way, that it is um, one of those things where, you know, the, the transparency of what's happening behind the closed doors of government and being there in person is really important um, because it's a lot harder for any of the elected officials to kind of look you in the eye and say one thing and do something else in person than it is to do it on the phone or over Zoom. And so, you know, some of the conversations I had with some of my peers last, I guess it would have been last May or, or June, kind of wondering when the capitals were going to open back up again. It was it was unnerving that they were passing budgets, state budgets, and things like that were happening. And there were no government affairs people in the building. And that, or people for that matter, there weren't just Pennsylvanians or there weren't Ohioans. I mean, they weren't even in the building. And that was bothersome because that had never happened before. And so that's one of those things that the transparency part of it, um, you know, I think there is the the part of checks and balances that lobbyists do help with because they want to make sure, even though they might be tit for tatting each other, they also know they're holding a very delicate balance in place too, by making sure that that honest work is being done as honest as it can be at least. So that's, that's been weird. And, and I'll tell you even more than the pandemic, you know, what happened in Washington at the beginning of January has been odd that, you know, there have been parts of Capitol Hill that we can't get into still mm. as groups. Um, individuals can, they have to be escorted in approved by the Capitol police. So that's weird too, because, you know, not being able to get in front of your elected officials is something that, you know, we're, we're guaranteed as Americans to be able to access the people we elected. And so that's been interesting. And I don't think it's going to last forever. I, I think that that's going to be a thing that's going to have to change. That's interesting. I had, I had not even thought of that, but now that you mentioned it, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Right. And that th there's always this, there's always this balance that one has to try to decide on between security and access, right? Mm -hmm. That's not just government officials. I mean, that, that's a lot of things. Like it's a bank, yeah. it's a post office, it's our house, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, but it hadn't it hadn't occurred to me that, um, you know, I'm I'm sure the security protocols have changed, and when they'll change back, you know, who knows, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, going back to you know the September 11th. Um, you know, 2001 attack, you know, we didn't used to have those barricades in front of the White House, right? You could just go right up and right up to the, the, the fence right. and look through and whatnot. And, right, you don't do that anymore, right? That's mm -hmm. just a change and an acknowledgement of the fact that the world has changed. So, you know, it hadn't occurred to me that because of the, because of a, of a, of social instability, that that's going to change the game as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it remains yeah. to be seen. It remains to be seen if we're out of the woods on that or not, right? Stay tuned, right. I guess, for 2024. Um, <laughs> so that that that's interesting. I never thought of that. Yeah. Um, so you know, lobbying, my, my understanding is that lobbying is actually a fairly regulated activity. Um, I think a lot of people don't appreciate that. It's not, you know, lobbyists are not allowed to just run around with, you know, briefcase full of unmarked bills, right? And, 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 you know, just buy votes. That's, that's the impression, but that, I don't think that's allowed. Um, certainly not considered good form. Um, so how, in, in your mind, I mean, how strict are the regulations for lobbying? You know, do they, do they have an effect on what you do? Do you, do you think they could even be stronger? Do you think maybe they're even too, too strict in cases? 
Well, I, I think it gets it gets difficult. I understand the point of it all because you know the pendulum does swing when you're you know flying a group of congressmen to the Super Bowl <laughs> to sit in a box, and you know there's that, and then there is you know or the the Caribbean to enjoy a nice weekend with your spouses. You know there are levels to where it just doesn't even make sense. But when you can't even you know maybe you're concerned about nickel and diming dinner or a conversation at a coffee shop or things like that. I think that does get difficult um, and, and really does impede on freedom of speech and things like that. But again, it's a difficult balance to find. I mean, where is the line? I, I don't really know where the line is at. Um, I can tell you that I've been a pretty conservative lobbyist. I don't have buckets of cash to give anybody. So the best I've got is my word and my time. So I've never really had the luxury of being able to yeah. put people on a plane. But, you know, when you're concerned about time and you're concerned about little things and making sure you're not breaking the law, sometimes it, it does get um, a little laborious um, to make sure that you're not um, in terms of how many hours you're doing this and how many hours you're not. Um, you know, but I do think it, it is something that needs to be regulated because you know the pendulum always swings. Someone's always going to take it to the full extreme on one end. And yep. You know, but it, but again, it's, I don't think it is a bad, I don't think it's a bad industry. I can see how they get bad names, but I think it's a very important thing that legislators spend time with lobbyists because there's a lot of things they don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm lucky. You, you seem like a nice person. I don't think that you would be a willing participant in an industry that, that <laughs> is doing evil basically. Right. <laughs> Um, you know, it, 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 you, you serve, you serve an important function of communicating to our democracy. Um, so, you know, but, you know, speaking of that, actually, I, I am curious and I, I'm not even sure if this is a fair question. But I'm going to put it out there anyway. Are, are there, are there any clear examples in terms of, of lines that somebody considered an ethical lobbyist just simply won't cross, Right even regardless of regulation, you know, my world is regulation as well. And there are things that I can do that are legal, but they're not necessarily good form, not the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And in your world, does that exist too? And I think it'd be educational to me. I think it'd also be educational to our audience to understand from your perspective, you know, what are some lines that, that most lobbyists that are, would be considered professionals with a capital P that they generally just would not cross? Oh, just, I mean, really, the law is written now that if you are just, if you are functioning ethically as a human being, you don't need to worry. So okay. I'm saying, hey, I will give you this car if you vote this way on this bill. That's not okay. okay. <laughs> you can't do that. Yep. I mean, and that's pretty obvious, but you probably wouldn't do that with your kid's school teacher either. So, you know, that's, those are some easy lines to not. Cross. I don't know. We've had a few actors <laughs> who have gone to jail because they did pretty much that. But yes, you're right. Yeah. Most wouldn't. <laughs> right. You know, the way the law is written now, it's not hard to just do the right thing and not misbehave. Um, but they're absolutely like anything else are bad actors in terms of bribery, in terms of, you know, funding generally on or, or just advocating for generally unethical policy that might benefit pocketbooks. That that's the most popular one, I think. I mean, I, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but I'm sure if you Google it, you'll find them some bad actors who do that. Um, and then the general, you know, lobbying against things for your selfish interests, even if you know, it's not right, right. It might just be better to sit quiet <laughs> and not yeah. say, 
you know, it's like, again, your kid's baseball team. Well, I don't want Timmy to get on because my son's not going to get on. So I'm going to work really hard. So Timmy doesn't like, right. eh, well, she shouldn't do that either. You know, yeah. might not be pleased with it, but like, just do the right thing. And, and you won't, you won't have any issues. You don't really need to worry. They're not after people trying to do the right thing. They're after the ones trying to do the wrong thing. So. Right. Is it, in your mind, is it easier to lobby to change to to change something, or is it easier easier to lobby on behalf of keeping the status quo? Does one side have an advantage over another in your mind? Well, typically, the status quo is easier because um, okay. it doesn't involve any change of anything. Um, when you're looking to make change, you have to get allies on board, and you have to prove why you need to make the change and make sure it doesn't cost any money or save money or, you know, kind of all the bells and whistles that go along with it. It, it typically involves a lot more work. The status quo, and there's nothing wrong with the status quo. I mean, there have been plenty of visits and we call it often good government relations, going into an elected official's office and saying, hey, this policy on R&D tax credits is terrific. It, it works really well for innovation community. You know, the right people are getting rewarded. They're expanding business in the state. Don't do anything with it perfect as it is. Bravo. Thanks so much. We really appreciate it. And, you know, legislators typically really like those types of meetings and you don't make them work They're They jokingly will say, Hey, these are my favorite kind, you know, we're, we're doing the right thing. You're not I'm asking for anything. It. Right. I, I love <laughs> these, you know, and they, and it's good to tell them that because the squeaky wheel is the one who gets, you know, the grease. So if you're walking in and saying, this is great, don't fix, it's not broken. Awesome. But the one that's coming in and saying, we shouldn't be taking money and putting it towards tax credits for research and development. We should be putting it over here. But nobody's coming in and saying that the R&D tax credits are good. They may think they're only bad. So, you know, the, the status quo is, is never a bad thing. If you like something, you should tell them that you like it because that's good, too. Nothing wrong with that. Now, we've been talking from the perspective of lobbying at the federal level. But lobbying takes place at other levels of government too, does it not? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, for for example, you know, I don't know if if this may or may not be part of your mandate, but I, I imagine there are plenty of lobbyists that are hanging out in Harrisburg that are trying to influence oh, some yeah. sort of Pennsylvania policy, right? Definitely. Yep. And in Columbus and you know, everywhere else across the country, there's plenty of them all the time that are there. Yeah. And and I'm thinking, you know, even even at the municipal level, there's there's probably some lobbying going on. You know, I'm, I'm I live in a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia, called Chambly, mm-hmm. and you know we're a neat little town of forty thousand people, and we're spunky and everything else. And we we have we have a mayor that gets paid like minimum wage or something. I think I think the greeters of Walmart make more than he does at this point. Um, and, and but you know we have a, we have a city council, and they pass ordinances, and they're zoning. Mm-hmm. There's zoning issues and real estate's going gangbusters here. So people want to develop everything. And, you know, I haven't looked into it, but I suspect on some, in some form or fashion, there's lobbying going on in my very town as well. Absolutely. For sure. And you touched on probably the biggest one that local municipalities are lobbied on. And it's on, you know, anything that's affecting the land or the real estate market or anything like that, because they, you know, you think of it as, you know, 30,000, 15,000, 100 feet, you know, so what's really close to you is what your local people are regulating and talking about and what's, you know, as it gets bigger. So they're talking about rights of way, they're talking about drilling rights, they're talking about 
you know, zoning and whether they're going to let a commercial development come in or it's going to stay, you know, residential or, and there's plenty of lobbyists that are there. They're on behalf of the real estate industry or the energy industry or you name it, or, or, you know, I'll go back to special interest groups, but that's, you know, energy industry, those types of things, or it could be the Sierra club talking about don't put a road here because there is a nearest extinct, you know, particular type of worm that's in the ground, which happens all the time. Um, So there's a lot of that that goes on on the local level. And, you know, so in in that respect that, you know, in some cases, you know, lobbying may actually be very accessible to a relatively small business. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Because you're not necessarily going to have five or six players that are, are pouring hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars into a lobbying effort, right? It's like, yeah. Hey, you know, if I pay a couple thousand dollars, can you talk to a couple of city councilmen basically, right? So. Oh my gosh, the schools are a perfect example right now. The public schools, with the mask yeah. mandates and what's being taught. Those are all school boards. Those people are all elected. And so, you know, yeah. how you're influencing your local elected school board is, you know, goodness gracious, that's all over the place. And so those are all, they can get lobbied just like everyone else for sure. We're talking with Jennifer Grundy Young, and the topic is should I engage in lobbying? Um, a few more questions before we, we, we let, let you go. But um, one question I'd like to ask is: in, are, are we in an age now where, if you're a business of any size, lobbying is probably a cost of doing business because government is so pervasive that it just seems to me if your business achieves some size, I don't know what that what that size is, but I suspect there's some size where you you just sort of can't hide from the government, right? So you're, the government's just going to impact what you do. You know, is that you know is that just going to be a, a budget item for a business of any size going forward? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, I think that you can be paying attention to it. Um, you can vote a lot of different ways by getting the right people in office. And again, that's not lobbying. That might be campaign contributions. It could be kind of making sure the people you want in office um, are there based off of what they believe and don't believe. And again, that's not, that's more campaign work than it is lobbying, but it's kind of the other end of lobbying. It's getting them there first before you have to lobby them. Um, But then on the other side of lobbying, you can do something as, as simple and as great as joining an association. You know, you have chambers of commerce that are really close to you. You have trade associations. You know, all of our tech councils, many of them are regional in nature. They're not statewide. They are, you know, in like city areas, Kansas City. They're in um, Chattanooga. They're in Nashville. They're in, you know, greater Virginia, northern Virginia. So they're not... Um, you know, large national associations, they're, they're regional and their members are typically just like you. And they're dealing with a lot of the same things you are. So when you bring something up to someone who works there and saying, you know, this is a huge problem to my business, they say, yeah, we've heard that from 10 other companies. So this is great. We're working on behalf of you. Go back to work and do what you need to do. So, and typically those costs are not very much. It's, it's, you know, a couple hundred dollars, maybe a couple thousand tops in a year that you can do that and you can get active without doing, without spending a lot of time too. So. What do you think is the most misunderstood part of lobbying? What, what does the public think lobbying is about that? That's just not right. If you're an insider, you just know that the public's perception just doesn't meet reality. Well, I think going back even a step further, I think a lot of people don't think that their voice is going to matter. 
generally speaking. You know, you talk to a lot of people, I don't care, it doesn't matter. They're going to do what they want to do anyway. Which, yeah, in probably a lot of cases it is true. But in a lot of cases it's not. And so, you know, you can, you know, everybody has an elected member of Congress and you're a voter in their district and you matter and you should absolutely reach out to them and your state officials and your local, you know, your commissioners, your township supervisors. You can do that. And you know, we jokingly, a former colleague of mine used to always say, it's always better to make a deposit before you have to make a withdrawal. And it's a terrible way to put it because it has nothing to do with money. It's much more the get to know them before you have to get to know them. So get to know them before, you know, make sure they know your name, your company, what you do before you have to call them and say, they're going to take away this regulation. I have a great example of a company um, for the member of Congress I used to work for. It was an organic um, personal products store. So they sold, um, and this was like before organic stuff. This is early 2000s, before the organic, the USDA organic seal was a big deal. And, you know, everyone had the seal. Your product has to be 95% organic to have that seal on it. And they were taking that seal off of their soap just because they didn't think soap needed to have it on it. Well, there were plenty of people that had allergies to all kinds of things that were in soap. And it was a big deal to them because it, it gave them access to a market like Whole Foods and different places that only held the organic seal. Well, they reached out to the Congresswoman's office and it was as simple as writing a couple of letters to the USDA. The USDA had no idea. They didn't do it because they were being malicious. They just were doing it because they thought, well, who needs soap to be organic? Well, here's why. <laughs> so the fact was my boss had toured the facility. My boss knew exactly who they were. She was like, oh my gosh, they took their seal off. She didn't need to go tour them. They picked the phone up and called her. She knew their names and got right on it. It was a matter of minutes versus let me come out and see you in a couple of weeks when my schedule clears. Let me, you know, da, 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 da. So making a deposit before you have to make withdrawal for anybody on any level of government is not a bad thing. It's very helpful and good for you as an American. <laughs> I'm going to frankly, it sounds a lot like professional networking. Yeah. Right. I mean, lot, I guess, you know, the way you describe it, lobbying is really just a very highly specialized form of, of professional networking when it comes right down to it. It's, it's, you know, and, and that's more relationship building. And as I mentioned before, good government relations, but you just, it's good to do. It's always better to approach things from a friendly voice than from an angry one that, you know, needing quick action on things. So, sure. so um, a couple more questions. Um, is there, does anybody ever stop lobbying once they start? It, it seems to me that, that once you, once one, once a company starts lobbying, engages in lobbying, particularly if they have any kind of success with it, they probably don't stop, right? I would think it's one of these things that kind of once you're in, you're in. And it, it's, it's sort of hard to, hard to pull the plug on that and, and, and get rid of or forego the benefits that you were getting from that, right? I think it probably goes back to why you would do it in the first place. Mm -hmm. So why your company is getting involved with it. If it is for personal gain, depending on what the personal gain is, which, you know, of course you're going to act on behalf of your selfish interests. But typically, if you're a part of association, you know, it is for the greater good for the most part um, and will benefit lots of people. But let's say you're after maybe a government contract that requires congressional approval. Well, once you've got the contract, you know, if there's nothing else you really are looking to lobby on behalf of, you know, you might stop. And, you know, depending on what your product is, if you make 
know, the pieces for a joint strike fighter. You're not probably going to be lobbying on those anymore once they've approved that entire contract and it's headed through. So it depends on what you're actually lobbying for. If it's one of those things that you're in an industry that's super heavily regulated, like financial services, life sciences, things like that, um, depending on the size of your business, if you are a large business, you know, a large pharmaceutical company, you probably don't have a lot of choice in the matter. You, know, you really have to be paying attention all the time because a small change could make a huge impact on how you do business every day and for better or for worse. And it could be done by people who don't really know the implication of what they've done. So that's, that's the fear oftentimes. And it's again, through no fault of their own. They're supposed to be a jack of all trades when they're trained lawyers or accountants or things like that. You know, it's just the way our country was set up. Uh, Jennifer, this has been a, a, a neat conversation. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we, we've, we haven't covered some questions other somebody in our audience had, or maybe there are questions our audience wish we'd have gone a little bit deeper on. Um, if, if somebody has a question, can they contact you for follow-up? And if so, what's the best way to do that? Sure. You can go right um, on our website, techna.org, T-E-C-N-A dot O-R-G. Um, and my name and email are listed there. Or, I'm sorry, my email and my phone number are listed there, but you can reach directly out to me at J-Y-O-U-N-G at techna, T-E-C-N-A dot O-R-G. And our phone number is 412-545-3493. And I might be able to direct you to one of the members that are close to you that can be more helpful to you right in your hometown. Well, thank you. Um, That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Jennifer Grundy-Young so much for sharing her expertise with us today. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I am on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Bradyware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.